We're continuing a series that we started last week, looking at some of the, the villains uh, of Scripture. Generally, I think when we think about some of the stories in Scripture, we think of ourselves looking at some of the great men and women who are inspiring, and we can learn things from them, certainly. But there's also others who are there. There are people who we haven't thought about necessarily all that much that perhaps we need to think about how we can be sometimes the villain in the story. Because we've all caused harm, we've all done things, we've cheated, we've lied, and if you don't believe that, just listen to country music for a while. And every single person in this room could have a country song written about them because you've done things and I've done things to hurt people. And it's easy to push those things off to the side and just say, oh, it's all that person's fault. But we sometimes need to look in the mirror and think about where is the brokenness in the world in me? And sometimes it's about, like, actually experiencing things that humbles us a bit. There was a man named Charlie Shedd who started a series of talks that he called the Ten Commandments for Raising Perfect Children. And then he had a kid. And he changed the name to Ten Hints for Parents. And then he had a second kid, and he changed the name once again. (laughs) Changed it to a few tentative suggestions for fellow strugglers. And then after his third child, he stopped giving the talk altogether because that's just what happens. And it's not just about raising kids. It's in life. It's in relationships. And that's why we desperately need community because it's really easy to believe that you have your stuff, you know, somewhat together until you're around people who don't necessarily see you for how wonderful you are. We sometimes see things that you need to address. So there's a story in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a book uh, called Esther. If you want to turn there, Esther is about halfway through your Old Testament. I'm going to do my best to, to tell this story and give it what, what it's due, but it really, you should read it this week. It would take you about 15, 20 minutes to read the whole thing. I'm not going to be able to tell you everything, and it's something that is just really, really has a lot for us to teach about. I don't know if you have been to a VBS where Esther was taught when you're actually reading it. You're like, whoa, how is this a VBS story? And I know it's just a little bit odd when you actually think about it, but Esther finds herself in a moment in Jewish history where the Jews, as often they find themselves, they are a minority group with the dominant power. And Esther um, finds herself with a guy named King Xerxes in charge. And Xerxes and their kingdom owns basically everything from India to Egypt. They've conquered all this stuff. And the book of Esther begins with Xerxes basically showing off, flexing a little bit with all the power that he has because they've conquered all of these places. And so for six months, Xerxes has these different items brought out. Like, oh, we conquered that kingdom back there. Here's an artifact from that place. It's like a living museum, basically. So for six months, they have this this huge event going on. And at the end of that six months, it culminates in a seven-day feast for everyone in the kingdom, which is an unlimited buffet. And it literally tells you in the scriptures that everyone had as much as they wanted to drink. Like if you're a heavyweight or a lightweight, if you can have like a couple beers, you can have whatever you wanted to drink. If you've ever planned a wedding, you know how expensive that is. A seven-day feast for everyone in the kingdom. Xerxes is just showing off his power, just to show off how rich he is. And then at the end of this party, his plan is to have his queen, Queen Vashti, who is known for being very, very beautiful, just to come out and show herself, because not only am I rich and very, very powerful, I also landed her. There's just one problem. King, Queen Vashti is an independent woman, 
And she says, no, I'm not just going to be paraded out like this. And the king and his noblemen, they get together, and they start to think, what are we supposed to do about this? Because it actually says this in the passage. This sounds really bad, but they actually say, like, if other women get an idea about this, I mean, what are we supposed to do? They might rebel in their homes. So they decide that the best thing to do is to um, kick king, Queen Vashti out of the kingdom. And so they put her into exile. But the problem is King Xerxes is sad now. He has all this money and all this wealth and nobody to share it with. So they basically come up with a version of The Bachelor. This is the script for The Bachelor um, way back in the Old Testament. And it, these women who uh, are from the kingdom, they get a chance to present themselves to the king, and the king gets to, to basically decide who is the fairest of them all. So in Esther chapter 2, it, it tells us uh, this about this, this beauty pageant that is happening. should be on there. Yeah, so before a young woman's turn to go in front of King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment. Like, that's pretty unbelievable, isn't it? So 12 months of, of pampering to not only just have your natural beauty, but just be as beautiful as you possibly can for this very, very powerful king. And after this process, Queen Esther gets the rose, as they would give on The Bachelor. But there's one issue with her that she's hiding, that she's a Jew. And Jews in that place, they were not the powerful ones. They were a minority group in this community. And they were looked, on, looked upon with suspicion for a couple reasons. First, they didn't worship all the gods and goddesses that the others did. They only worshipped one god. And also they were considered a bit lazy because they didn't work on Saturdays. So there's a lot of suspicion about this group. So Esther isn't necessarily like really flaunting that she is, is part of this group of people. She has an uncle named Mordecai who actually raises her, who gives her advice throughout this, this process. And so Mordecai is like helping her and actually does something uh, pretty remarkable. He, at a moment when there's a plan to assassinate King Xerxes, he foils the plot and then he like is able to help get, uh, make sure that King Xerxes is okay. So Mordecai makes this happen, but then he doesn't get credit for it. And so in uh, Exodus chapter, not Exodus, in Esther uh, chapter 2, it tells us that uh, she, in, or that, that for whatever reason, like Mordecai makes this happen, but then this man who's in, in the king's cabinet basically named Haman, uh, he gets the credit for it. And so he is like this, this meteor rising in this kingdom. He's a really important guy that gets credit for something that really he didn't do, but now he somehow is getting more and more power and acclaim. And everyone thinks that Haman is a really big deal. So as he rides around People are bowing down to him because he has all of this power and significance. But there's one person who won't, and that's Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle. Because Jews don't worship people or the same gods and goddesses that other people do. So Haman gets so mad about it. He gets so angry that he then develops a plot to rid this kingdom of the Jewish minority. And as I was thinking about the, the villains uh, in Scripture and the villains in, in different stories, Hans from Frozen came up. Came up. Uh, Carter, last week my son mentioned Yzma, who's a great one. Uh, Cruella de Vil. I mean, there's all of, of these people who you come to mind as you think about stories that you read of these, these really like, cruel 
people. But as you think about, like, not just those in stories and and books, like, if you think about real villains, you might think of the New England Patriots because they seem to win every year until they just lost Tom Brady. I mean, there's so many different people you can think of in in sports. But if you were to think of one person, we would have a conversation over coffee about perhaps, like, the, the most vile person in history Hitler is one who would come to mind. That would be one of the first people that we would say. And, and he did some, some terrible, terrible things. But before Adolf Hitler, there was Haman, who came up with this idea. And actually, still today, there's a, a festival in the Jewish calendar called Purim. And during Purim, this story of Esther will be read. And when this story is read and Haman's name comes up, they spit which I don't want to do today because that's very COVID unfriendly. But when Haman's name is mentioned, he's just so awful that they spit because he came up with this idea. And Esther doesn't know what to do because all of a sudden she has this position of power and she just doesn't know what to do with it. Like, what what am I called to do? Like, should I try and stop this? If I say something, I might get in trouble. And she has this conversation with her uncle Mordecai who says something that's probably the most famous passage in the book of Esther. Mordecai tells her this, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. So basically, God is still going to act whether you say something or not, but you and, your fa- you and your father's family will perish. It's likely that you die no matter what. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position, that you have this power and authority for such a time as this. And I think this is great for us as we think about whatever position of authority or power that we have, whether you're a boss or somebody that's you know, just getting started, an entry-level position, you have some level of power and authority. I think the question for us all is how are you going to use it? For Haman, he gets just a little bit of, of power and glory and people are bowing down to him and it goes to his head and it just drives him crazy that this one person won't bow down to him. For Esther, she's presented with this opportunity, and she has this decision to make. And again, Mordecai says this this beautiful thing. Who knows, like maybe you've been brought into the position for such a time as this. There was a time when I was with um, five of my pastor friends. We were having lunch with with a mentor of ours, and uh, it happened to be just five of us. We were, we were white pastors, and the guy that we were talking with, a friend of mine in the group, was complaining about some things about his job, like you would do if you had some people at your job that you were just kind of talking about. So this guy was complaining about some things that were going on at his job, and the mentor stopped him, and he said, I understand that there's frustrations about ministry, just like there's frustrations about like plumbing or whatever it is that you would happen to do, and you'd all get together. And I understand But he said, one of the problems with all of you here, and he pointed to all of us, is you were born on third base and you think you hit a triple. That's one of those like painful things. You're like, ew, he's right. Like he, that's like one of those like, that's the medicine that I needed but didn't want to, to take necessarily. And as we continue to see and think about racial injustice in our world, I, I increasingly think, and this was a few years ago, I increasingly think he was more right and I need that medicine more than ever. It's easy for, for me, and I think it's easy for us whenever we like, gain something. It's not that you haven't worked hard. It's not that you perhaps don't, in some ways, you know, deserve that promotion or that position. But you all need to understand, and I need to understand, when we think about whatever role that we have in society, 
Number one, it's temporary. Like, perhaps you're going to stay in that position forever, but you might die. You're going to die at some point, so it's temporary. It's not going to last as long as you think. And Scripture would say, you're going to be held accountable. It matters how you use the power and influence that you have. And again, I think that's something that we're learning over these last few years. It matters that we listen to minority voices. It, la- it matters that we listen to those who sometimes don't have the power. Don't be born on third base and think you hit a triple. I don't even think it's possible for me to hit a triple because I'm really slow, but, but don't think that that position that you have is just going to be yours forever and you're going to use it to abuse people because that's not what we're called to be. And I love how Mordecai says this. Use this position that you have to glorify God. It's awesome. Like, this is so cool that, that you're here. And I know it's tempting not to say anything. You're, you're living in this unbelievable moment, but please consider how you might use it to bless your people, to be a servant of God even in this moment. So Esther decides that she's going to have King Xerxes and Haman to a dinner party. And Haman's really excited about this. This is really awesome. I'm I'm a very important person. Like, I'm going to have dinner with the king and the queen. And so Esther then is presented with this opportunity, and the king says, all right, what is it that you wanted to talk with us about? And Esther says, I I just, I can't yet. Give, Give me one more day. Let's do this one more time. And Haman leaves the party with an expectation of coming back the next night, and he goes home very happy. And on his way home, he sees Mordecai again. And Mordecai just won't bow down to him. So when he gets home, Haman tells his friends this. In Esther chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, his many leather-bound books, and all the way the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she invited me to go along with the king again tomorrow. All this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And at this moment, I think we all want to say to him, come on, Look at all that stuff. And yeah, you're powerful. You've had this opportunity. That's great. And there's just this one person who won't bow down to you. And in some ways, it feels unreal. Like, how is that possible? But we all know ourselves. There's been times in my life where, if I'm honest, I've let one person or a couple people get way more of my headspace than they deserve. And they're not thinking about me, but I'm thinking about them, and I'm talking about them, and I'm not talking with them about them. And they, because of like whatever they've done that I can continue to kind of think about and talk about, like I can just kind of perseverate on one person. And something that I think is is just so plain and obvious from this story is not everyone is going to see how wonderful you are. 
In fact, there's going to be people who sometimes you really need to sit and hear some of the criticisms they have for you because it's important for you to grow. And I know it's just tempting to just say, like, whenever someone criticizes you, think of all the ways that they're wrong, and it always has some sense of being unfair, and I totally understand that. But sometimes we need to sit and listen to some of those things because if not, we can end up just putting them into this kind of category and they just drive us crazy. And again, they might be driving you crazy and they're not even thinking about you at all. For Mordecai, he's just not bowing down because he serves God. It's not necessarily supposed to be this huge slap in the face, but King Xerxes just, or not King Xerxes, uh, uh, Haman just can't stand it. So after this very passionate speech about how powerful he is, Haman's wife is like, well, couldn't you just kill him? I mean, you're kind of a big deal in the kingdom, right? So he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. So he has uh, some of his men start to build this tall gallows that is common that then they could publicly shame Mordecai and kill him. So the construction of that begins. And then, again, this story is so interesting. Then, back at the palace, King Xerxes can't sleep. And as he can't sleep, like you all do, um, he says, can you go uh, grab me the chronicles of my reign? Like, that's what he does. He can't sleep. Like, we, we take melatonin. But for, like, for King Xerxes, it's like, yeah, go, go ahead and grab the chronicles of my reign. And so, like, the, the attendants bring him the chronicles of his reign. And as he reads the chronicles of his reign, he realizes, oh, no. Like, we gave Haman some credit and glory for actually what Mordecai did. It was Mordecai who foiled the assassination attempt against me, it wasn't Haman. And just then, and this is the perfect story, just then Haman walks in, and the king says, oh, Haman, I'm so glad you're here. There's somebody that I really want to honor in the kingdom. And Haman's like, oh, shucks, like, come on, like, no, this is just everything coming up me right now. And so the king says, like, yeah, we have, we have this, this plan, we, we have to somehow uh, honor this person. And so Haman then says, what I think you should do is get your horse and get your robe and put your robe on this person and then like parade this person around town saying, this is someone the king wants to honor. And the king's like, that's a great idea. Go get Mordecai and get him ready. (laughs) And this is just Haman's worst nightmare. Just imagine that moment when, like, the person perhaps at work who you've had some tension with or whatever it is that's happening in your life that, you know, you have this person and, like, all of a sudden, he has to parade Mordecai around town saying, this is someone that deserves honor. So he goes home a little bit upset about that. And he gets home and he's wallowing a little bit in self-pity. And then his wife says, aren't you supposed to like be at a banquet tonight? And he's like, oh yeah, I got to go back up to that. And so the second night of the special dinner that he has with the king and Esther is happening. And Esther says, yeah, there's something that I, I, that's really hard for me to say. But there's someone who is trying to kill me and all my people. I think you could do something about it. And the king wants to protect this woman, of course. And then so he he says in Esther chapter 7, verses 5 through 10, King Xerxes asked Esther, who is he? 
Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. This dinner that he was hoping to be great is not so great. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, banquet hall Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. He's just begging her. Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in this house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs standing by the king, said, Hey, there happens to be this pole that we just built that stands near Haman's house. He had it built for Mordecai, but um, yeah, like I, I think it's possible that we could just use that. And the king said, Impale him on it. And that's how Haman's story ends. He dies on the pole that he created for his enemy. And I think that's often how we live. When we have somebody who, again, has just taken up too much space in our mind and we're having conversations about them and not with them, it's easy for us to build a monument to maybe perhaps like throw them on one day. And in reality, it's us who were killing. I've heard it said that anger and like having like a, a, a real anger towards somebody and, and thinking about them constantly, it's like, you know, taking poison and then expecting the other person to die. I think this is true. He set up this poll, it's going to happen, and then in reality, he's the one who ends up on it. I think about our context in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is, is a competitive place. It's easy for us to look at people who are perhaps a little bit ahead of us or whatever it happens to be and just spend a lot of time thinking about them and uh, perhaps how, you know, we could do a little bit better, how we could make our, our lives a little bit better. We're looking all the time, like, to the right and the left and comparing ourselves to that person. Oh, he doesn't even have all that much, that much talent, but how is he ahead of me. And unfortunately, I think we like to pretend that we live in like a judgment-free society, but in reality, we are asked on social media to judge people more than ever. And so as we think about like our self-worth and our value and all the things that, that we care about and really are important, we're judging ourselves like compared to all of these people at all times. And to be honest, I think it's killing us because you aren't meant to judge yourself against the world. You aren't meant to judge yourself against even one other person. And that doesn't mean that you don't work hard and do your job to the best of your ability and, you know, put in the time and the effort. But at the end of the day, when you think about, like, where it is that you're getting your self-worth and your value from, it isn't from, like, looking to the right and the left of other people. It's looking toward God and living for the applause of heaven. And say, God, this is what my ultimate desire is. I want to please you with my life. Like, I'm not going to look for every person that doesn't bow down and worship me as I think they should. I'm not going to, like, look around and spend my life, like, angry at people who I'm not necessarily even going to give the chance to have a conversation with. Because, again, some people aren't going to see how wonderful you are. And some people are going to have some criticism that you actually need to hear. 
And if your heart isn't in the place to receive it, you can drive yourself crazy. This is how pride gets into the negative sense. Pride in and of itself is something that I think is a good thing that we are meant to like seek honor and respect and to live like respectable and honorable lives. I think it matters. But just like anything, it can get distorted. Like lust in our heart is about intimacy with somebody, but if we use it and just let it go crazy, it can be extremely damaging. Pride is something that I think we don't necessarily even fully understand, just how negative the implications can be. C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian thinkers of the 20th century, said this about pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, those are some pretty bad things, right? And that's a list of like, whoa, I mean, that's, that's some tough stuff, are all mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It's through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the possibility of love, contentment, or common sense. Any of you struggling at times with love, commitment? I probably won't say common sense. You're all pretty sensible. But love and contentment? You struggling with that at times? C.S. Lewis, again, one of the great Christian thinkers would say, it's because of pride. And oftentimes we would think of like other, you know, sins as, as worse things. But honestly, I know in my life, pride is the spiritual on-ramp to a lot of bad stuff. I think about from time to time, I know this is going to shock you, uh, but from time to time, I have a, di- a disagreement with Mandy, my wife. I know, it's really surprising. Um, and as that's happening, there's sometimes when I, I feel like, you know, after we've had the conversations and uh, we, we are, are, are thinking through it a little bit, I realize that the thing isn't the thing anymore. The thing that perhaps, again, is like the on-ramp to start this conversation. It's not the thing anymore. And what it is at this point is my pride. It's my sense of, you know, being, being honored and, and respected. And again, I think there's a healthy way to do that, but there's times when we distort it. And there's a really thin line between a healthy sense of pride and self-respect and something that will eat at you and truly damage the trajectory of your life. Because you want to look at Haman and say, this is ridiculous. It's one guy. Everyone else is bowing down to you. Everyone else thinks that you're a pretty big deal. But don't let yourself be driven crazy by some sense that, you know, everybody has to honor you in the way perhaps that you think you should be. And as you live your life, again, work hard, do your job, try and use the gifts and talents that you have to bless and serve the world. But at the end of the day, can you live for the applause of heaven? Can you give your best effort And then you don't look to the right and to the left for your sense of value and worth. Because there's a really thin line between a quest 
for honor that does matter and living in such a prideful way that you end up dying on your own pole. Remember, we serve King Jesus, who we sung about, who was killed in a very painful and shameful way. Some verses that I've come to have a, a greater sense of how much they mean are in the passages leading to the crucifixion, where it talks about how everybody just stood around and mocked him. And for much of my life, like that was just stuff I read past. Think about that. For Jesus, who like he could have done something about it, he stood there and he took the mocking and the shame because the cross isn't just about sin, it's also about shame. It's also about the ways that sometimes we like, can, can get messed up in how we see things. And Jesus, though he could have done something about it, he listened to their mocking. Because it's a way for us to think about even our shame. So may we, as we try to define ourselves and our lives, live for the applause of heaven live for the things that ultimately God is calling us to live for.